a text from our daughter in Atlanta, have a great Sunday morning. So that's not just to me, probably to you. It just appears on my iPad, so. (laughs) That's okay. I love to have the last word. Don't you? I like to have the last word. There's one thing we all like, it's having the last word. The last word in an argument, a discussion, a debate. Having, having the last word feels good. It makes us feel like we were right all along. Last words are very important. Not, not just in the winning of an argument or discussion. Just last words in general. The last words of great historical figures are studied by many people. Can you pull me down just a bit? Here we go. Historical figures study last words. Last words are sometimes valued as the most important words that they've spoken in their life. Some people speaking last words on their deathbed have affirmed their faith, asked for forgiveness, confessed a crime, told where the buried treasure is, recanted heretical beliefs, or given a final blessing, which we find all throughout the Old Testament. Last words many times have great significance. When we study the life of Jesus, his teachings, his stories or parables, events, miracles, and interaction with people, we discover through that who God is. God reveals to us who he is, how he works all through Jesus. It is God becoming human. We just celebrated that at Christmas, the incarnation. God becoming human, easier to touch, easier to see, easier to understand, and accessible to love. Someone described that as God with skin on. Jesus spoke many words and did many things. In fact, the Apostle John writes this. If every, he was talking about Jesus' words. He says, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for the books that would be written. John 21. The most important time that Jesus spent with his followers were his last 40 days. His last 40 days. And Jesus also had some last words spoken to his followers. Jesus' last words moved the disciples from following Jesus to taking the lead to help others follow Jesus. He gave them a mission. A mission. That mission is the beginning of the Christian movement, the birth of the church that we find recorded in the book of Acts. The last words of Jesus give us the why of this movement's beginning. What Jesus told them to do. What are we to do? And I want us to look at the beginning of this mission given to the followers of Jesus in his last words. In his last words. We started in January last year with with the, the chosen looking at the life of Christ through July. Then we took a very important time to look at God's top 10 because of all the issues that we're facing in our world today, looked at God's top 10. And now I want to take the last incident in the life of Jesus and see what he taught his disciples. Today we're going to look at on mission. 
Next Sunday, we're going to begin the mission carried out, the birth and the spread of this movement, the church, in the book of Acts. But we're going to start today on mission, looking at Matthew 28, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. The followers of Jesus are on high ground at, in Mount of Galilee. And it, it felt good to be on top of the world at this point, especially with a guy that just was resurrected from the dead. Jesus said, I want you to meet me there. And when they saw Jesus, it says, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. How many people have you worshipped lately? You may admire an athlete or somebody that can do great things or someone that's famous, but we usually don't worship people, but they worshipped him. Why? Why? Because they believed he was God. They believed he was God. Many had witnessed his death and his crucifixion, and now Jesus is alive. He's alive. For three years they had lived with him. They had seen him raise the dead, heal the sick, calm storms in an instant, feed four or 5,000 people at one time with a sack lunch. All kinds of signs and wonders they had seen. He was killed. They saw him put to death, and now he was alive. Pretty incredible to be there on the top of that mountain with this, this person who you saw go through all that, and now he's alive. No matter what... Others believed they worshiped Jesus. They knew he was God. But there's an interesting phrase in this. It says they worshiped him, but it says some doubted. Some doubted. They said, what's wrong with this picture? Well, there's nothing wrong with this picture. Frederick Bruner writes this. He says the structure of the Christian faith is bipolar. Disciples live their lives between worship and doubt. Between worship and doubt. You say, bipolar? I'm, I'm bipolar? Well, spiritually speaking, we are all bipolar because we all wrestle with doubt. We all wrestle with doubt. Christians believe and they doubt. Seekers or inquirers wrestle with belief versus doubt. And we all live our lives somewhere between the spirit of worship and the spirit of doubt. That's okay. Bruner says Christians are both believers and doubters, adoring and wondering, trusting and questioning. All disciples experience this bipolarity, and it's not healthy to deny it. We must admit that there are times we just doubt. It's okay. And of course, I'm looking at this situation, I'm saying, these guys are right there. They saw everything and they still doubted? That's kind of crazy. Who here has never experienced doubt? You or someone you love contracted cancer. 
You lost a child. Your spouse cheated on you or your marriage fell apart. You lost your job or the house fell through and you're still wrestling with depression. We are sidelined many times by doubt. And if you dealt with doubt, you're in good company. They experienced doubt. We experienced doubt. These other 11 followers of Jesus had doubts too. And God uses worshiping, doubting disciples like you and me to do his work. Isn't that amazing? To do his work. We win our war with doubt by obedience to God's command, just like they did. These guys asked Jesus to increase their faith. And Jesus said, if you have faith, just a little bit of faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, move, and it'll move. That's pretty small. Pretty small. But Jesus knew that we can expect great things with ordinary faith. So what are Jesus' last words? Here are the last words. What are Jesus' last words to these worshiping, doubting followers? What are these last words? He starts by making an incredible statement. I, Jesus, am in charge of the universe. I, Jesus, am in charge of the universe. Actually, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Quite a statement. And you wonder, did Jesus ever claim to be God? <laughs> that's, that's pretty clear on that statement. And the word authority, in this usage, claims deity. It's not just an authority word. It's, it's claiming deity. This is a claim for absolute executive power, not only in heaven with God, but also on earth with people. The CEO of the universe. What gives someone authority? What gives someone authority? Someone gives it to you. Authority comes from outside of ourselves. Authority comes from outside ourselves. If you're the president of a company, you're hired by the board of directors and they give you authority to act. The president of the United States the Constitution prescribes the election process. People vote, electoral college votes. President is, is, is elected. Does our president have authority from himself? No. The voters have given the authority by their vote. So the president even receives authority from outside of himself. A police officer, how do they exercise their authority? Is it their own authority? No. They're given authority by laws and other government officials outside of themselves. The military has a chain of command and they can only operate it by, by granted authority. Jesus was given authority by God, his father. God, his father. Matthew eleven twenty seven states, Jesus said, all things have been committed to me by my father. Speaking of Jesus in Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, it says, that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Amen. That's a mouthful. <laughs> That's... That's a lot of everything in that. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' authority was given to him outside of himself from God the Father. Don't, don't ask me to explain the makeup of the Trinity. We just know that God the Father gave all that authority to Jesus, his son. And he says, I'm in charge around here. I am the CEO of the universe. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, what are his last words after that? He says, Roman numeral two, move out, you're on a mission. Move out, you're on a mission. I've been given all this authority. I am telling you to move out on a mission. He says, therefore, go make disciples. I'm in charge. Here's the deal. Here's your mission. He didn't say this is your mission should you choose to accept it. This was not mission impossible. This is, this is your mission, period. It's real life. He said, here's your mission. Do it. This is why I came. This is why you exist. This is the mission of his followers. Move out. Make disciples. Now, what does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to make disciples? I want to take some time to look at that. What, first of all, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? In the first century, a disciple did not enroll in a particular school. They didn't go take online courses. They didn't go to a, a particular type of business school or law school or whatever. They enrolled with a particular teacher. It wasn't about a school. It was about a person. They enrolled with a particular teacher. It's similar to, to music instruction. My wife, Judy, studied piano at Seattle Pacific University. But if she was to describe it, she would tell us, I studied piano with Marcel Mack. Who was Marcel Mack? She was a preeminent piano teacher on the West Coast. She, she would say, I studied piano with Marcel Mack. Now, she went to Seattle Pacific University, but... She studied piano with Marcel Mack. We are not followers of a set of principles or ideas. We're not followers of a set of beliefs or doctrines. We follow a person called Jesus Christ. It's a person. He's a person. Disciple. Now, what is a disciple? First of all, a disciple is a believer. Believer. We have to believe in our in the teacher, we have to believe that the credentials are solid. They are who they say they are. They have credibility. So that when they tell us to follow, we can follow them. It's, it's trust. It's to place trust in the person called to lead us. To teach us and to train us. So to believe in Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, means all of that and much more. To place our trust in, submit our heart, our mind, our emotions, our will to Jesus. It's to Jesus. See, in Hebrew thought, belief was not just an intellectual assent to a set of truths or principles. We, we tend to move belief. We say, I believe that, and we think it's just intellectual assent to facts. Belief included the mind, yes, but it also includes the emotions, the passion, and the will obedience. It's mind, emotions, and will. Belief 
includes action. It's inseparable. To believe in Jesus is a total absorption in the person trusting, having faith in, in action. And one cannot truly believe unless they take action on that belief. Unless we take action, we are not truly a follower of Jesus. That's why following Jesus requires a submission and a giving of our life totally to him for his purposes. So first of all, a disciple is a believer. Secondly, a disciple is a follower, a follower, one who follows after, one who imitates, one who does what they do, one that does what they do. And the actions become a part of our character. Now, I've used this illustration before, talking about the four levels of learning. Four levels of learning. The four levels are unconscious incompetence. Unconscious incompetence mean, meaning I don't know, and I don't know that I don't know. Okay? And there, there are things that I would say I'm unconsciously incompetent, like, like cooking or something like that. I don't, I don't know that I don't know. I think I can, but whatever. So unconscious incompetence. Then there's conscious incompetence. I know that I don't know. Okay? We know we don't know. Then there's conscious competence, meaning I know how, but I have to think about it. Conscious competence. And then there's unconscious competence. I know it so well, I no longer have to think about it. So unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious competence. Now, let me give you an illustration. might make this easier. How many of you grew up driving, driving a stick shift? How many of you grew up with an automatic? Never do? Okay, that's fine. I'm not condemning anybody for any, any particular sin, okay? Um, if you're driving an automobile, unconscious incompetent means you drive an automatic, in other words, you don't know there's a stick shift. There's never been a stick shift that you've ever seen. And so unconscious incompetence is, I don't know anything about stick shift. Okay? Conscious, conscious incompetence, that's unconscious incompetence. Conscious incompetence is you start learning how to drive a stick shift. And, and you know how challenging that is to make sure you get the clutch in and do this, and you can't find it, you grind it, and you go through this thing, and you have to really concentrate because you're consciously incompetent at driving a stick shift, okay? Now, you move from that to conscious competence, okay? Which means I can drive a stick shift competently, but I have to concentrate. I have to think about it, okay? I can't talk on the cell phone, drink coffee, and eat at the same time. I have to concentrate on just that process of driving a stick shift. And then unconscious competence, I'm so comfortable driving a stick shift, I don't have to think about it. I just go through all the motions, boom, 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 and off you go, okay? Now, where am I going with this? <laughs> In the beginning, the beginning of discipleship is unconscious incompetence. We don't know what we don't know, okay? We come into our, our understanding of our faith and we don't know what we don't know. And so we have to really learn and start thinking about it. 
then we have to think about it all the time. Okay, if I'm going to be a follower, a disciple, I need to read the word, I need to pray, I need to meditate, I can't get angry, I've got to be patient, I've got to be loving, etc. Um, and, and so we develop these, whatever, and we say, before we do anything, we say, what would Jesus do? Because we have to think about it. We have to think about it, okay? A true follower, however, takes the character on so much that there isn't a mechanical wooden set of rules and regulations. We become like Jesus. It becomes part of our nature. We don't always have to ask, what would Jesus do? We just do what Jesus would do. Because part of our, part of our nature is part of our muscle memory, our character, unconscious competence. And that's the, that's the goal that we have because if we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we want to be so much like him that it's part of our nature. We're not having to sit and think about it all the time. It's who we are. That's what a disciple is. A disciple of Jesus, thirdly, is a learner. A learner. A learner will study the life and works of Jesus. The goal is to keep learning all that we can about Jesus with the goal to be like him. And our mission is to help people believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, learn about Jesus. That's the what is a disciple. Then how do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? He said, your goal, your mission is to make disciples. Okay? We don't have a recipe that we can just put things together and pop it in the oven and boom, out they come. Disciple. It doesn't work that way. How do we, how, how do we as part of our mission make disciples? First of all, number one, we need to build relationship, relationships with pre-Christians or non-Christians. We can't make a disciple unless we have a relationship. How did God communicate that he loves people? He incarnated the message and he sent a representative human being called Jesus. God. And through Jesus becoming one of us, we learned about God's love. How does God do that today? He does it through the incarnation. Now, in Jesus' day, Jesus did that by coming in his body. He did his work through his body in the physical realm. He came, they could see, they could taste, they could touch, they could hear him, they could interact relationally with this person called Jesus. He did his work through his physical body. Then he left. Then he left. So how does he do his work now? Through his body. The church is his body. You, that's you. Me, oh, oh. I just got responsibility, didn't I? It's through his body. The church is the body of Christ present today. And that's how he does his work. God in you and in me, we are his representative. And people will not believe in anything until, until we build a relationship. They have to believe in us before they can believe in Jesus. Kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> that's part of our mission of building relationship. 
with people who don't know Jesus. Now, that, that can be challenging, especially if you've been in church a long time. All your friends are churched. All your friends are Christians. All your family, whatever. And you say, how many, how many pre-Christians do you know? And I go, I, I don't know. How many, how many pre-Christians do I know? And how do we navigate that in relationship? See, people matter to God. And the question is, do you know anybody that does not know Jesus? This isn't a guilt trip. This is an opportunity to say, what can I do to make disciples? So how do we make disciples? Build relationships. Have to have relationships. Number two, tell them about your faith. Tell them about your faith. I've told you about this before. We have a, a great chiropractic doctor in, in Seattle that we first went to when we needed an adjustment. One of our daughters had an accident falling in one head, you know, other things. And so we went to this chiropractor. And as a family, it's located in Seattle area, we started going to Dr. Brody for treatment. He uses a specific method and it worked for us. And if anyone needs treatment or back pain, whatever, go to Seattle. No, you don't, you don't have to go to Seattle. Um, we would say to them, go see Dr. Rohde. His method worked. And I have tremendous faith in Dr. Rohde, his ability to solve chronic pains through his treatment. So if people had that, I'd say, go see Dr. Rohde. Dr. Rohde. What's your story? What's your situation? Hey, I had this problem in my life with alcohol or drugs or with depression, addicted to pornography. I had problems in my marriage or finances. And Dr. Jesus fixed my brokenness, my pain, and healed my marriage. Amen. Dr. Jesus. You don't have to have a theology degree. All you have to do is say, Hey, I, I know somebody that helped me. Can I tell you about Jesus? Jesus, fix my brokenness, my pain. Tell them. Tell them about your faith. I have great faith in Dr. Jesus. He changed my life. Did Jesus change your life? Tell them. Once you're friends, they're going to want to know. People have great curiosity today about spiritual things. Tell them about your faith. And then, number three, help them establish a relationship with Jesus. One of the best ways to, to do that is to tell them your story. And we have, we've had some, some training sessions and some things to help people develop their story. If you've been in sales, you know there's an elevator pitch. You've got to be able to tell your story and promote your product in like 30 seconds or 60 seconds from the time you get from uh, the bottom floor to the fifth floor. And so it's called the elevator pitch. Well, we all need some kind of a story. It's not a pitch. It's a story. It's a genuine story. How Jesus changed my life. There are ways to do that so we can tell our story. Your story, your faith your journey. 
Then there's follow through, follow through. Help people learn about God in the Bible. When people come to faith in Jesus, it's called being born again, born again. New believers are born again and they're likened to newborn babies. And babies need a lot of help. We never look at a newborn baby and say, look at him, he can't do anything. He just sleeps, eats, lays around and fills his diapers. What a, it's worthless, no. An abandoned baby may survive for a few hours, but soon will die without proper care. Babies require parenting, feeding, diapering, learning how to walk, talk, run, to become a responsible member of society. And God calls on us to follow through and parent. Number five, training. We can go on and on. Read the Bible, how to pray, spiritual disciplines. It's head, heart, and hand. Actions. So what are some principles of making disciples? What are some principles of, of making disciples? First of all, discipleship is a process. I've shared this, this before. It's called the angle scale. It's called the angle scale. And this represents where people are in their knowledge base or understanding or relationship with God or the supernatural or whatever. And, and every person, every person here and every person you know will be someplace on this angle scale. And it starts where? Minus five. Minus five is no awareness of a supreme being. And it's very rare that somebody is in this place, especially in America. Everybody believes in God or something about God. Okay? But, but they may not they may or may not have an awareness of a supreme being. I think I first ran into this when I was on, on the college campus, University of North Dakota, and I ran into a, someone from a foreign country, and we started talking, and it was like a, a supreme being, God, it, they had no awareness. But most people at least have an awareness of a supreme being. And that's minus four, an awareness of a supreme being. So they, we know that they believe there's a God, or whatever they want to call it. So what our job is to find out where they are. Now there's also, number minus three, an awareness and a positive attitude toward the gospel. So you meet this person, you find out they believe in God, um, but they have no concept of uh, Jesus or forgiveness. Or The gospel is the fact that we were sinners, Christ came, died for us, paid for our sin so he could bridge that gap so we can know Jesus personally and we can have a relationship with this God. And that's the gospel, the good news. And so they may or may not have an awareness of the gospel. If they gain an awareness, then they have a positive attitude toward the gospel. Then there comes minus two, the decision to act. Decision to act. And after this comes repentance and faith in Jesus. So every person that that we know has come through this process of an awareness, an awareness of the gospel, all those other things. And all of us here have come to faith in Jesus Christ somewhere along the line. And depending on their background, they may have, have been raised in Sunday school, they may have had some kind of background in some faith or some religion or whatever, but they're gonna be somewhere on this. And if they don't have a, a personal relationship with Jesus, how do I get to know where they're at? 
relationship, relationship. And, you, and, you, and they're going to move down this continuum at different speeds, okay? Some people, if you talk to them about giving their life to Christ, the first time you meet them, they say, what are you, nuts? What, what's wrong with you? But building relationship with them, gaining their trust, finding out who you are, and then they want to know what's important. You might be a Packers fan or Vikings fan. They want to know that. They want to know things about your life and what your likes and dislikes are, you know, all those other things. And sooner or later, it's going to lead to religion or faith or God or something. Now, you can't make it happen, but you can relationally relate to people. It's, it's relationship. How does that happen? And then they come through that process of a decision to act, and then they become a believer. After that, the next part is incorporation into the body. Now, the body, this, this is the body of Christ, the church. Now, the church is many splendored, changed, different, all kinds of different cultures, everything. But they need to, like we need to, eventually be connected to the other parts of the body of Christ. Okay? We're not loners. We don't just kind of come and go. And, you know, we're not body parts flailing out here by themselves. Body, when it talks about becoming part of the body, means part of the church. There's no such thing as isolated Christianity. It's in a fellowship of body. That's what we all need, every one of us. Then there's conceptual and behavioral growth. There's a solid relationship with God. And then reproducing Jesus' life in others. There's a process that we go through. It starts with no awareness of a supreme being to an awareness, and then all the way down to this. And this cycle, as we build relationships with people, he said, go make disciples. Go establish relationships. Do this. This is part of our mission. Number two, disciple-making has a beginning but no end. Disciple-making has a beginning but no end. We, we never stop growing. We never stop processing that. Number three, discipleship requires risk and commitment, getting involved in people's lives. This is where we tend to balk a little bit because if we get involved in people's life, it might require time or energy or something. But it's going to require that. And number four, Discipleship takes time. Discipleship takes time. Now we get to this point, and a lot of people will say, well, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. We're worshiping, remember, we're worshiping and doubting people. A lot of people say, I can't do that. And I say, good, you can't. What's the point? You can't do it. Jesus said, I'm in charge of the universe. You move out and obey me. And his last words, Roman numeral three, I, Jesus, will support you all the way. I, Jesus, will support you all the way. Verse 20, and surely I am with you always. I'm with you always. He doesn't just say, here's a mission, go get it, good luck. 
Let me know how it goes. We're promised the presence of God. The presence. There's, I'm with you. Two parts of this promise. The presence of God. When you're facing a huge challenge, you're experiencing a difficult time in your life, who is it that you want by your side? You're in a challenging time. You want a person of strength you can trust, someone you can talk to who supports you. God doesn't say, here's your mission, good luck. Hope you make it. <laughs> no, he says, here's the mission, get moving. I'm with you all the way. Amen. I'm with you all the way. That's why Jesus can take bipolar Christians, worshiper, doubters, okay? It's a journey, worshiping, doubting people. And he can change the world. Change, he can change Eau Claire. He can change your neighborhood. He can change your family. His presence. And the second part is the power. It's not just I'm just there. There's the power of God, let her be. Power of God. Now sometimes we have a hard time understanding. As we move into the book of Acts, we're going to be talking about this, the power of God. I like to think about it in terms of water. Water illustrates, water illustration. Most of the time when you go swimming somewhere in a swimming pool, the water's about 80 degrees, okay? That's 80, 84 degrees, somewhere around that. It's a comfort level that most of us have in a swimming pool. But if you go to a hot tub, if it was 80 degrees, you'd say, this is awful. So you heat it up to 105 degrees. Hot tub. Now, if you go from the hot tub to the sauna, you don't want it to be 105 degrees. You'd shiver. And a sauna, the one I, I go to, is 140 degrees. 140 degrees. There's also a latte, which is 150 degrees. Okay, All these different degrees. And 180 degrees is an extra hot latte. Okay? Some people like extra hot lattes. Okay? Now, th these are different degrees of heat. But there's one point at which water or liquid, particularly water, turns into power. What degrees is that? 212. 212. What happens at 212? It boils. It turns into steam. At 212 degrees, water turns into steam. It is transformed. And when it's transformed, it turns into power. It can run cars. It can run turbines. It can run all kinds of things because now it's steam. It's been turned into power by heat. God heats us up by his power and we're transformed. And then his power works through us. It's not my power. It's not what I can do. It's his power that he pours through us by his Holy Spirit. And we need to be transformed by the power of God in order to make a difference. And we need to admit and acknowledge the fact that we cannot do it on our own. We cannot accomplish this mission on our own. It takes the Holy Spirit in us. And he, if you've asked Jesus to be in your life, he is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. And the question isn't, how much of the Holy Spirit do I have? How much can I hold? It's how much of you does the Holy Spirit have to do what he desires and wants to do.
We need to be transformed by the power of God to make a difference. And Jesus' promise is, I will power you. I will power you. Acts 1.8, which we'll look at later, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I, Jesus, am in charge of the universe. Move out. You're on a mission. Make disciples. I, Jesus, will support you all the way. On mission. Happy New Year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a purpose to live. You've given us a mission to make disciples. And it's going to look so different in everybody's life. But I pray, God, that you, by your grace and your strength, would begin to work in a new way in us as we move forward on this mission. That we would realize our part in that. And that we would not in an arrogant way say, I'm important, but in your eyes, every person is important to that mission. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you, by your grace and your strength, would make this an incredible year in mission. In Jesus' name.